So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise Founders and Friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and Friends with your host, Scotty. Hey, this is Healy Jones from Cruise Consulting. Excited to welcome to the Founders and Friends podcast, Shomik Ghost of Bold Start BC, a first check investor. Uh, but first, a word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Healy Jones, VP of Financial Strategy here at Cruise Consulting. And I want to say thanks to our podcast sponsor, ARC. At Cruise, we've got a number of clients successfully using ARC to manage their deposits, payments, access financing, all in one place. One of the things that ARC provides that's really great is over a quarter of a million dollars in FDSE coverage. Their insurance program goes beyond the standard limit and it secures up to five and a quarter million dollars. So startups that have even more cash than that can go and access treasury solutions that provide yield and safety. If you're a startup looking for a secure financial solution that can help you scale, please check out our sponsor, ARC, at ARC.tech. So hey, Shomik, welcome to the show. How are you? Good, good. Doing well, Healy. Thanks for having me on. Really excited to be here today. Very excited to have you. Uh, I've got a ton of questions. You are with Bold Start, which is a pretty unique fund. There are, there are a lot of people who say they do what you do, but you guys are actually really known for it, particularly for first check investing. So I'm going to ask a bunch of questions about that. But first, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like how, how did you get into venture capital? What, what's your journey to where you are now? Yeah, I grew up uh, in New Jersey. So, uh, you know, on the East Coast, at least uh, I was not exposed to startups or, or venture capital at all. You know, I just kind of thought the, the route that you did was you became a doctor uh, or you worked in uh, pharmaceuticals <laughs> or you basically eventually became an investment banker or a hedge fund person. And so I, I actually went down the path of, uh, you know, after college, uh, trying to go into investment banking. So started off uh, actually in, in fixed income of all things. Uh, so completely uh, you know, well away from what I do now. And then from there, just went through a bunch of different jobs. I went out to San Francisco where uh, I joined an investment bank and was doing tech M&A there. And from there, actually, I learned what, you know, startups and venture was. And that kind of started my my whole career to, you know, where I now have been at Bold Start for going on now four years um, at the team. And so I uh, have done everything from growth stage investing to venture debt, to being the first first employee of, of a, a startup where we were trying to do a bunch of different things. So uh, varied careers, but you know, finally uh, found what I wanted to do at the early stage. I mean, that, that's pretty great. You got this sort of traditional finance training background, spending some time in startups, now investing in startups. It's actually a little bit similar to myself and then Scott Orn here at Cruz. Like we both start off tech investment banking, did some finance venture stuff and a little operating stuff. It's uh, it, it, it's kind of fun to get to see everything from these different angles. If my mom was listening, I think she would have said like, "Hey, I wish you could have found out, you know, the career a little bit sooner." But but uh, in the end, it all worked out. So yeah, sometimes it's the journey that's the fun part, not the destination. That's very true. So what 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 about Baltar? Like what what is it? You guys are actually pretty cool, pretty different. Um, Tell me a little bit about the fund and what you guys like to invest in. Yeah, so Bold Start, you know, we just, well, I won't say just, but like last year or, or a year and a half ago, announced our sixth fund, uh, which we're investing out of. And all we do is focus on backing enterprise software founders from literally like what we like to say day zero, right? So we are the first institutional check into every one of our companies. And that means that we are literally backing people at the pre-product stage before any line of code is built, before a website before, frankly, there's anything, right? It's normally just, you know, anywhere from one to three founders in a room that have an idea and uh, come to us with that idea. 
the way we're able to understand what they're doing is we specialize in enterprise software. And so even within that, I would say we specialize in areas like software infrastructure, where there's developer tools, data infrastructure, cybersecurity. And then also uh, in, in terms of the SaaS layer, we like to do a lot in kind of workflow productivity software or future of work or things like that. So those areas kind of, we get very specific. We really understand the end users and the buyers. And then we're able to kind of dive in with the founders when they talk about those areas, just because that's what we spend all of our time on kind of compound learnings in over time. So so you're, you're kind of like the unicorn of the investor world, like first check, got an idea, you're talking with the founders, you're helping them think through the market, the business model, like that's, first of all, it's gotta be a lot of fun, but secondly, like you are like really hard to find. So pretend you're a founder, wanting to come talk to you, what, what do they need to have? Like what, what tips can you give them to help them be more successful? Yeah, so we, we like to say like, you know, we go pre-product, right? But we don't do pre-idea. And, uh, and so what we, what we <laughs> okay. really want uh, people to have when they come to us is, is you know, a well-thought-out, well-formed idea of what they want to build. Because then that helps us help the founder actually validate, like, truly, is this what you want to build? Is this what you want to spend the rest, you know, the next 10 years of your life building? Or is there kind of little tweaks or things that could be done to that initial idea to kind of improve the trajectory in the future? So we'll do that by, you know, putting in peers who maybe have either built similar companies in the space or adjacent to it. And then also from kind of the enterprise buyer perspective, right? If you're a, a founder starting out, normally it's, it's just like, you, you know, you haven't even written the code yet, right? So you're trying to visualize what that would look like. But if you can now start to talk to some of the enterprises that are more forward thinking, uh, and say, hey, if I did build this, like, how would that work in your, you know, software architecture, or how would that work in this use case? Those buyers can then start to tell you, oh, actually, this is the problem it would solve, but it would need to do this as well, and it would need to integrate with this product, and so on and so forth. So you could start to kind of build out that framework for what that would look like in the future, and start thinking about that now, even though we actually advise companies not to go enterprise too quickly, because sometimes that can actually lead to you getting stuck in this area where you're trying to, you know, deliver something to a very large enterprise. And that's taking all of your resources and all of your energy and having to do security and role-based asset control and all these sort of things versus in the early days, it may be better to actually just iterate with uh, an early customer that would, is more quicker to adopt. So then you can have more cycles changing the product. So before you go for that, Elephant hunting, find somebody a little bit smaller who's not going to turn you into like a custom. Yeah, or or find an enterprise that like is absolutely, you know, knows the stage that you're at and has a history of adopting products as the first customer, which, by the way, there are some out there. Frankly, you know, a lot of them are, are in the bold start ecosystem, right? Because that's, that's, that's what we do. And so they want to adopt those uh, technologies and get ahead of the problems that they know their organizations are going to have. And so you want to find those if you're going to go enterprise. If not, yeah, you want to start with you know, a smaller company where they're more of an early adopter. They understand the pain point. They're willing to work with you, even though you're still very early. The other thing that I find with a lot of extremely early stage startups or ideas is that the founder is starting out in a very tiny little niche. Some of them can articulate how they expand into adjacent niches or add features to and, and, and others can't. Is that a, is that a thing you've kind of seen that some, some founders come with you and you, you think the idea is too small and others come to you and you think like, let's just articulate this different and, and it's bigger. And if so, like, how do you differentiate between those two? And then, and then what kind of advice would you have for a founder about, Hey, like, it's okay to start small, but Here's how you get big. Yeah. So 
I, I would like to, I, I'd say like, we like to have founders really start off and be able to kind of articulate the vision at a you know, thousand foot level, right? From the, from the airplane view, right? Of, of what's going to happen, but then be able to drill down really into the specifics of what the steps will be to get there. And by the way, they may not be right, right? But at least having an opinionated view of how that will progress and evolve is something very important because again, that gets us to understand that the founder understands that, hey, eventually we're going to be changing the world in this way. But right now, what we first need to do is find one early adopter who's going to use our product for this specific use case. And then uh, we can start to move into these adjacencies over time to do that. So it's a very specific way uh, of, of when we're looking for founders who, who who pitch us, we're looking for founders who can kind of, again, drill down to the nitty gritty granular details of that first product and that core wedge that they want to kind of build, but then also be able to zoom out and say like, here's why that will impact the enterprise or the customer's workflow uh, in the future in this big way. And that's a really hard thing to do. But at the same time, some founders, especially uh, a lot of the founders we work with who are technical founders, they may not have that, you know, sort of product marketing background or things like that. And so that is teachable. But what's not teachable is the ability to kind of still zoom out and see like, this is what the impact of my work here would be, right? Because the founders need to see that vision of, of how it could be big in the future. So there's a lot of different ways, I, like a thousand questions I want to ask you all of a sudden here, but, so, but I'd love to, to learn if you have any particular examples of folks who've done that really well, that kind of really impressed you, kind of, I, don't, I don't know if you can share a particular founder. You've obviously seen stuff like that recently. Like how do those people communicate that to you or what do they do or to the extent you can tell us? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a variety of, of founders, right? We're, we're really fortunate to work with a number of them. But I think if you look at our, our current largest company by valuation and employee size is a company by named Sneak, uh, which uh, painted this vision early on. Guy Pajarni, the founder, painted this vision that developers would uh, would care about security, essentially. And, and it would basically change the software development lifecycle because of security being something that would be alongside what the developers were coding on a daily basis, right? And this was a pretty crazy vision, to be honest, because... Um, you know, at the time, one, people would always say, hey, developers don't care about security. And two, also, like, it was kind of more of a top-down thing, right? Like, you had firewalls. And so, like, that's not something that an individual developer could bring into their organization. That would have to be, like, a CISO-mandated thing of, like, okay, we're going to secure our entire network with this firewall, right? And so this was a really revolutionary vision. But where Guy started was actually saying, you know what, in the Node.js community, which is a specific type of programming language, there are a bunch of developers that, it, that that's growing very quickly and the adoption of that's growing very quickly. And they all use open source libraries. Those open source libraries happen to be something that are out there for any attacker to be able to look and see. And so then they can go in and kind of find vulnerabilities and actually attack packages through those kind of vulnerabilities that they have, right? And so that is a really great example of like the vision was, hey, we're going to create developer first security, right? And that's a really big vision. Um, we weren't sure what the market size was of that, by the way, but we were just like, oh, interesting. If this were to happen, there's a lot of developers in the world and it's growing very quickly. So that could be a pretty large market, right? But where the starting point was, was, hey, we're going to start with open source developers, right? That are using Node.js, not even using other languages. And so it was hyper-focused 
hyper figured out on like, what are their workflows? What are their pain points? And let's resonate with them. By the way, now, you know, their last rounds was, I think, a $7.4 billion valuation. And, and so they've expanded the TAM significantly past the Node.js developers, right? They've gone to all the different programming yeah. languages, and now they've moved on to infrastructure as code, container security, and so on and so forth. So we like to say it's not the TAM that you start with. It's the TAM that you end with. And it will always start with the smaller TAM. That's what allows you to actually build the business without like large companies coming in. But then over time, if you nail that kind of core wedge, you can expand to adjacencies. That's great. I really like the way you described that. First of all, a great example of a company that's doing really well. But the idea of starting with the thousand foot vision and then explaining what you're actually doing kind of right now to get there. I think, I think that's really solid. I, I help a lot of startups think about their pitches. And a lot of times they start at, here's what we're doing right now. And then here's where you're going. But you're saying, hey, look, just start with where you're going to go so that people know where you're going. Then you can say what you're doing right now. And it's a good strategy. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and I think the why is important, too, for founders who are listening, right? Which is like, why is that important? So, Shomik, you just said this thing, right? Healy's saying he agrees with you. Oh, this is great. Like, But like, kind of what's the need? And the need really is just like you're starting something that like everything is almost like stacked against you in a way, right? Like you have to find customers, you have to find hires, you have to sell every single minute of your day from, you know, probably your significant others who, you know, you're, you're devoting your time to this startup to, you know, future employees to, you know, the customers and all of that. And, and that's something where like being able to articulate that vision is so important, right? Because that will get people excited about, wow, okay, if this were to happen, this could be really big. This could change the way things are doing. But then when people ask you like, well, what are we going to work on now? Or how's this going to work today? You need to be able to tell them these are the steps along that journey, right? And that's why it's important. It's because you're going to be doing this not just to a VC, but literally every single moment you talk to a service provider, you talk to you know an employee, you talk to a customer, it's going to be something you're going to have to talk about. So keeping in the same vein here, like what what what's another piece of advice which every founder knew before they came and pitched I wish every founder knew that there's nothing that like a lot of founders will come and say, oh, we were just saying something that we thought VCs would want to hear. And ironically, like, I, I don't really know what that means, but but some, in some cases it, it kind of means like, you know, well, they wanted to hear something that was a big market opportunity or, or, or something like that, right? There's a lot of VCs out there. So everyone will have, you know, kind of different things that they want to hear from you and, and different things they're looking for. But in reality, what everybody really wants to hear is what are you passionate about, right? And what do you know about the world that nobody else does? Because that's what's going to keep you driving forward on this mission, which is super hard and challenging, and it's going to take 10 years, right? So it is, it is not a journey to go into just kind of, you know, willy-nilly, right? You really have to know what you're getting into. And so what we actually want to hear is like, what's the passion, right? What do you wake up thinking about in the middle of the night, that you're just like, oh my God, I can't get this out of this head, out of my head. I need to solve this problem, right? And so we're we're not like I, I I really hope founders don't over-index on what they think VCs want to hear. Instead, talk about the pain points, the problems, the end users that you're passionate about, and what problems you want to solve for them. And that will get us excited because we'll feed off of your excitement, be able to ask you questions, and again, that helps us understand how deeply you thought about the idea. So I guess you know, kind of my my next question to you is you you just got. Excited, you just got kind of passionate there. So, so my question for you now would be like, what, what's kind of the most satisfying? Well, you know, we're, we're at the earliest stage, right? So, so I think where I get really excited is all the little wins that are along the way. And so I think a lot of times 
what happens is, uh, especially, you know, I used to be on the growth stage side. So um, when, when you're on the growth stage side, it's, it's very rewarding to see uh, each quarter being hit or exceeding plan, right? But it's kind of these, these, these larger milestones, right? But there's a ton of little inputs that form that larger milestone, like even just the end of the quarter, right? And at the earliest stage, that's what's so exciting is we get to see the first hire. We get to see the uh, the first prototype ship. We get to see the first customer, right? All those little wins yeah. um, are those inputs that then help us understand what will be the future uh, trajectory of the business, right? And so that's why a lot of the indicators, people always ask us, like, how do you know if a company's working or not? What we're looking for is basically product velocity and hiring velocity to kind of stay in lockstep. And what I mean by that is you can have a really fast uh, product cadence, right? But if you can't hire to the same speed, then what you're actually doing is you haven't built a, an org that can scale, right? So you have to figure out, okay, well then how would I scale that? The flip side is, let's say you can hire really great, but all of a sudden now, you know, the product cadence is slowing. Well, then you have also an org problem, right? Where people have either too much process or aren't collaborating well to keep that cadence high. And so what we're looking is always the velocity of those kind of staying together and those are the early signals that we can point to that even if like there's not even a customer yet, we can point to that this company's on the right trajectory because those things are in tandem. Hey there, this is the VP of Financial Strategy at Cruise, jumping in to thank our sponsor of this podcast, Arc. At Cruise, we have a number of clients who are successfully using Arc's fintech tools to store deposits, manage payments, get financing, earn yield, all in one place. But another thing that's important about Arc is that they have a heightened security and safety feature. Because they partner with globally recognized banks, they're able to offer an FDIC coverage over $250,000. In fact, they offer up to $5,250,000 in FDIC coverage. And if you have more cash than that, they have treasury solutions that can provide yield and safety for even more money. So if you're looking for a comprehensive financial solution that can help you scale, check out ARC. Go to arc.tech. Thanks again to our sponsor, Arc. I, I totally agree with that. Particularly, like hiring good people right out of the gate is important to us mainly as advisors. But uh, but the other place it's important to us is that we like to work backward the next round. And in order to raise that next round, there's particular things you need to accomplish. You, you've got to prove certain things. You particular pieces of product you need to build. Sales forecasts. It's kind of hard to do that with two guys and a dog. Like sometimes you do need to hire like a few more people to get it done. Spend a lot of time asking founders like, okay, you said you hired 10 people by now, but you only have five. Can you still get all this stuff done? Well, <laughs> and, and, and this is kind of the most interesting part about this current environment, right? Which I think is a lot of founders are learning about how much overhead and process can kill velocity. And, uh, and so, you know, a lot of times we think like, you hire more, right? That means you can do more things. But in reality, that, that also means that you have more management structure. You have more communication channels. You have more people that you need to get around the table to make decisions. And so that can slow things down. Now, by the way, when you're larger, it's actually kind of important to slow things down. Because imagine if you ship a breaking change to an API that millions of your customers rely upon, right? That's going to be a pretty big loss versus... If you do that uh, when you're earlier, right, and you only have one customer or two customers, you know, that, that impact is not the same. 
And so that's something where it's, you know, everyone talks about like bigger companies move slower, but it's actually for a reason. They kind of have to, right? Because they, they literally cannot break the product that like millions of their customers rely upon. But that's also the advantage that you have as a startup is staying lean and iterating very quickly. And by the way, from a perspective of working with like, you know, crews or, or, or others, right, is, is just like do tasks, like focus on what's important to you, right? And what, what's most important to the business, which is iterating with customers, getting uh, product feedback, thinking about what you're going to build. And so things like accounting, you should definitely have an understanding of, right? You should know your cash balance. You should know your burn. Yeah, numbers yeah. matter. But... But, you, but you should <laughs> do that. You, you shouldn't be the one who's preparing that, right? Because that's taking valuable time away from, you know, the, the, the core things that, that you should be doing to push the business forward. I totally agree. I mean, a startup is basically a ticking time bomb. You're running out of cash. It's a race to prove that you can raise more capital or a race to profitability. And so every second as a founder, you spend doing something that doesn't either help you get the profitability or help you be able to raise, you know, get to the milestones, you raise more cash. So I strongly agree. You gotta, you gotta outsource a lot of the sort of non-company, like non-customer facing, non-org development improving activities, right? You've got your culture to worry about, you've got your customers to worry about. Don't, don't, don't worry about like certain things like your finance. Like, yes, you should hire an attorney. Like you shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff yourself. Right? It's like there are other people who can do that for you. Kind of totally changing the subject here, right? The, the, the market has changed. Right? We're in the middle of 2023. A lot of uh, prognosticators, reporters are starting to say, oh my gosh, we're about to see a bunch of startups. What, what do you think is about to happen? Are we about to see a lot of companies go out of business? The market totally changed. Like what what's happens over the next six months? What's your crystal ball say? You know, I, I think uh, certainly the the environment changed so rapidly and so quickly that um, we still haven't seen probably the full fallout yet, right? Because it's it's delayed cycles. And, uh, and so, for example, in 2020, 2021, companies were able to lay, raise a lot of cash preemptively. And those cash balances still haven't run out, right? So companies still have runway. They're still executing upon their business. And then when it comes to raise, right, then that's kind of where the next kind of reckoning comes. And I think what's happening is honestly a, a couple things. There's one, some companies that maybe raised at too high valuations. But, you know, this is where I would say to founders, like, down rounds are not a bad thing. Like what, what matters in the end, right, is the the actually, you know, kind of valuation that you, that the value that you create, right? And so um, it's not even the exit value, I would say, because if you're building a public company, like, well, the exit value could be something very far into the future, right? And so you want that to be something that compounds over the long term in the public markets. And so in terms of like, what founders should do in this environment. One, I would say, don't shy away from down rounds. If you believe still in the long-term vision and you believe that you're seeing the, the market pulling your product uh, and you believe that things are working, then getting more capital at an appropriate valuation for where you currently are can still let you build towards that future vision that will allow you to become that lasting company, right? And by the way, like there's so many, I think Square, for example, uh, took a massive, massive down round on the IPO. You know, I think uh, Dropbox did the same and, and took a down round, I believe, on the on the IPO. But those are still businesses that are in the public markets. They're still operating very well. They're still providing value to their customers. So I think that's one aspect that's going to happen. And then the other aspect, I think, is there will be some companies that, you know, either fail or others who founders see kind of the writing on the wall and say, like, you know what? Not only is our valuation high, but also I just don't feel like we have that pull from the market, right? I don't think we've figured that out yet. In that case, you know, hopefully when you still have cash left, you can start to look for uh, where you could augment an existing team, 
right? And that's where M&A kind of comes into play. You know, the Silicon Valley and, and the large companies that we, we know of today in tech, which by the way is broadening outside, well outside of Silicon Valley. Nike has been making data infrastructure acquisitions. John Deere has been making IoT tech uh, acquisitions, right? So it's a very wide space. And so what I would encourage founders to do is just like, you know, have this really rational, thoughtful conversation with whoever you trust the most to kind of understand where your, your business is at and then uh, be able to, you know, act upon that, right? And, and it's okay if you need to engage in an M&A conversation, like that is not a failure. That is a way for you, the product that you built and all of your employees to continue to have a, a job, continue to create value within a larger organization. And by the way, learn a heck of a lot. So for your next company, you're gonna be that much more set up for the future. I 100% agree. This is what we're seeing here at Cruise. I think if you wrap things up gracefully, you'll be able to raise. A lot of times I tell founders, like, is this, is this your only idea? Will you never have another idea again? Is, is this the company you want to retire doing? Or do you think you have another idea? And inevitably, pretty much everyone's like, well, I'm, I'm going to have another idea. So it's like, okay, gracefully fold this thing up. Do it, And if you do it nicely, do it respectfully of the other, of the investors and the people on your team they would probably give you money again. This is Silicon Valley, right? This is not, this is not some country where failure is, is looked down upon. This is Silicon Valley. It's like, oh, wow, you sold your company for a very modest return. Like, I'll take a meeting with that guy, right? Like, I'm, I'm sure you would take a meeting with that person, right? So it's, it's, it's just like, honestly, failure, you know, kind of, as long as it's someone who learns from that, right? Which is what most founders are. They're learning machines. And so normally, you know, what we call so-called failure of like, okay, Sure. Let's say you didn't return, you, you didn't get the return you wanted, or even maybe lost somebody along the way, right? Well, guess what? Like we are in this journey together to build long lasting, impactful businesses. And if you can learn from what went wrong, if you can learn from being in a larger organization and learning how those, uh, how scaling works within that larger organization, uh, maybe more pain points that exist within that larger organization, so on and so forth, you can really start to build a powerful company. And by the way, like some of our largest outcomes have been companies that originally started with a founder who sold their business for a much smaller amount and then went on to build. Guy Pajarni sold his first company to Akamai, right? Uh, and then went on to build Sneak. Dimitri at Big ID sold his first company to, uh, uh, it was layer seven to CA Technologies. And then, you know, he went on to go build Big ID, right? Uh, Rahul sold reported to LinkedIn and then built Superhuman. So like, these are all examples of like, it's okay. And by the way, we were excited to back those first companies too, because like, no matter what, you're still building a cool vision, right? You're still building a product that gets people excited. And, and those learnings will help you go to, for, for a big company in the future. So again, it's 2023 and you're investing in Enterprise companies, we got to ask AI overhyped, underhyped, just right. Like, what do you think? <laughs> this is, this is the question, right? Uh, and you know, I think, uh, if we all had the answer, we would be a lot smarter and a lot, uh, a lot richer and a lot wiser. But, um, you know, I, I think the answer can be both, right? It is absolutely overhyped right now, 100%. There's, I don't think there's a, a, any way we could say that's not the case. I also think that it is underhyped in the long term in terms of what it will enable. But right now, we haven't seen those production use cases. We haven't even seen enterprises really start to adopt AI. The reason being, it just, it will frankly just take time, right? ChatGPT, 
I don't even know if it's been a, a year yet since you know kind of chat GPT three came out, right? Where it was really the step the the step function you know forward and and really this kind of order of magnitude difference in what you could do. And so um, so I think like it just takes time for that to happen. But right now what we're seeing is basically you know you can scale revenue very quickly you know doing what we call like a, a wrapper around the open a, uh, open ai api right and so uh, if you just call that api and then you build some sort of application that uh, you can use you know the the llms on top of whatever data you're collecting you can kind of start to build something really quickly so jasper ai writer ai copy ai right they all kind of do various forms of 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 content generation and those have scaled really rapidly the question is of course durability Right. And, and are those uh, kind of businesses, can they sustain growth over the long term? And I think we'll still see. Right. But you can scale very rapidly. Uh, and, and so what happens is a lot of founders see that. And then, of course, a lot of founders flood into that same area. And so this is where the overhyped nature happens. Right. Because everyone then starts pitching AI and they start saying, oh, we're going to do this. And by the way, did you see Jasper just went like, you know, like a rocket ship off? And it's like. Okay, that's great. But what you haven't seen is the 20 other founders that are doing the exact same thing because they saw the same thing that you saw, right? And so this is like the part that we get very excited about where we're, we, we get excited about the founders who are saying, hey, how can LLMs, right? If we're using the current instantiation of, of, of AI, how can large language models impact the architecture and workflows of core products that we see out there that exist? And this could be something like, taking something like a CRM and saying, hey, uh, LLMs work really well with structured and unstructured data. So what if we used a natural language interface for you to input that data in and it could automatically do the field mapping and, and data modeling for you? Or what if like, I don't know, it could even set that all up for you just from you saying, hey, I'm a healthcare company uh, in this region and so on and so forth, right? So these are kind of ideas that we're It'll just take time, but for founders out there, I would say like actually take that time. Think about, you know, what will happen in two years, right? That that nobody else is thinking about, and how can you then work backwards from there, right? So build for that future that's going to happen. And the reason I say that, by the way, is the largest outcomes that happened today started before key things occurred. And so vector DBs, they're the hottest thing right now in in AI, right? And everyone's like, oh, I need a vector DB to, you know, deploy LLMs. The largest company in that space right now is a company called Pinecone. Now, Pinecone is scaling like crazy, is raised at uh, great valuations, doing really well. Now, everyone's, you know, uh, has started other vector DB companies around that because they've seen Pinecone's success. Ironically, though, Pinecone has been building since 2019. So ChatGPT was three years away, right? That, that is like, that is the vision you need to build towards because then you catch this wave. We had another company, Protect AI. They started in 2021, I believe. And then ChatGPT comes out late 2022. So they're a year and a half ahead of ChatGPT getting released. Well, guess what? We thought that AI would be an attack vector and a threat vector that CISOs would care about in the future. It just came a whole heck of a lot sooner now, once, yeah. once ChatGPT <laughs> came out, right? And so, again, you've got to build for that vision of like what you believe will be the thing. And if you build for it, then once that wave comes, you can really capture it. Yeah, I mean, these are multi-year overnight successes. Everybody sees them take off and they don't, they don't notice all the work that went before. So I guess for the question of underhyped or overhyped, I'll, I'll put you down for underhyped. No, just kidding. It's, it's a, <laughs> like I said, overhyped in the near term, underhyped in the long term. So, so, I mean, there are going to be multiple billion dollar companies that, that come out. 
Jones. <laughs> yeah, and and to to be honest, like maybe the multi-billion dollar companies are also multi-billion dollar companies that already exist, right? Like that this is the this is the unknown part, right? It's like without a doubt, AI benefits Microsoft, Google, Facebook, you know, you name it, right? Whatever large company has a ton of data, it benefits them because now they can do stuff with that data that they weren't able to do before in an easier manner or expose interfaces or user onboarding to uh, customers or end users in a way that you know is easier than before. But that doesn't mean that there's still not opportunities for founders, right? You just need to think and, 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 and instead of jumping into it, kind of uh, really observe the different uh, kind of solutions that exist out there. And again, how could you change maybe the architecture? How could you change maybe the go-to-market? Uh, how could you change the data model? Whatever that is, to have something that's differentiated from the existing companies out there and then build upon that. Do you have any particular trends that you've noticed that the enterprise buyers that you've interacted with are thinking about around AI? Like they're, they're all looking for solutions, right? I mean, you know, the funniest thing about enterprises is like, they're, they're not stupid, right? They, they, they got to where they are because they did a lot of really smart decisions. And the smartest decision right now is to let your employees play around with what LLMs could do and uh, and be able to envision the future for what your product could could enable, right? And so um, Coca Cola put out uh, a AI generated commercial, for example. Uh, it was brilliant. It looked really cool, uh, and it was just a stunning, stunning thing that they released. And this is Coca Cola, right? This is not like the most tech forward company that we think, right? But this is a company that's that's you know, already experimenting on the edges of what's possible. And so these enterprises, what they're looking for and what they have pain points around is one, data, right? So the data that gets into an LLM, who can access that data? Where is that data being stored? Also from the training perspective, are they getting the right representative set of data to train? Because they don't want to especially have bias, right? Uh, in, in various ways, because if you have certain data, it could be bias towards genders or, or religions or whatever, right? And so they have all these things that they need to be aware of. So um, from security, from model deployment, from uh, from analytics, right? From understanding how these models run, observability, these are all problems that they have. And then not only that, finally, then they have the problem of like, okay, well, now what happens if we want to fine tune a model that we have on you know our own data, right? Uh, maybe customer support tickets. Well, okay, how do we then self-host that model? How, how do we train that? How can we access the GPUs that are needed to train that model, right? Like all these sort of right. things that are, are challenges. So it's a lot of these basic infrastructure things that, that are challenges that exist right now, but there's a ton of founders that are also you know, looking to solve that and building for that future right now. I mean, that means there's a lot of opportunity. Exactly. Folks inside these large enterprises are thinking about this. Yeah. And, and a lot of, by the way, a lot of the large enterprises, I think uh, just for listeners, like, again, they're not sitting on their laurels and they've basically gone out and said, open AI, what do we need to pay you for our own kind of like call it reserved instance of an LLM to use? And so, you know, the, once that happens, right, it's just a dollar cost, right? So, you know, on, on right. one perspective, open AI is in a great position from, from, from that uh, area, but once they pay that cost, now they, they have, you know, kind of unlimited bandwidth for their employees to experiment with. And that's what's got to be exciting. Like, this has been a great conversation. Really, really enjoyed chatting with you. How, uh, how can founders find you if they, if they want to get in touch with you? 
Yeah, so I'm on Twitter uh, at ShowMcGosh21, LinkedIn as well. And then also uh, I write a blog that's called Software Snack Bites, uh, where it's five-minute reads on a weekly basis and also have a podcast where I dive into, as you can imagine, software. (laughs) And so uh, we go pretty deep into various topics. Like, for example, we just released one in AI security. Uh, We're going to have one with AI's impact and SaaS coming out soon. And so very granular, like software insights for people who are excited about that. So if you're looking for uh, general advice, probably not the the best place to go. But if you want to get dive deep into uh, software areas of expertise, uh, that's the podcast for you. Thank you so much for your time. We had a great conversation and uh, hope you find some good AI enterprise companies to invest. (laughs) I I hope so. And and I I think we will, Healy, for sure. But thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to uh, chatting again in the future. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise from Founders and Friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and Friends with your host, Scotty Scotty Olds.